And welcome back to our Sports Talk. Doug Miles, Don Henderson with you as we come to you on a Monday evening in mid-December of 2020. And what a perfect time to talk about tennis. Yes, we're going to talk some vintage tennis tonight, talking about the old World Team Tennis League, which uh, uh, took place back uh, from 1974 to 1978. I happened to see a, a blurb about a book about it and uh, contacted our guest tonight. His name is Stephen Blush, and he's written a book called uh, Bustin' Ball. World Team Tennis, 1974-78, Pro Sports, Pop Culture, and Progressive uh, Politics. And uh, Stephen Blush joins uh, Don and I from New York tonight just to kind of reminisce a little bit about uh, the original World Team Tennis and uh, the uh, wild time it was. And, uh, Stephen, thanks for joining us. How are you tonight? Hey, it's really a pleasure. How are you guys doing? Well, I'd like to know, first of all, how you got on the track to do this because uh, you're one of the few people that you can talk to that probably even know about World Team Tennis. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I actually just the one I found out during my research, it started sounding eerily familiar. And it was because I had a cousin who used to go see New York sets games in Long Island. Right. But um, I was watching the MSG channel, the Madison Square Garden channel uh, in New York. And uh, they have one of those shows from videos from the vaults where they'd show like some Joe Lewis boxing or, you know, so, yeah, something Al, Al like Trowick that. Al Troutwick does that. Yeah. Al Troutwick. Right. Exactly. Right, so yeah. it was Al Troutwick and Billie Jean King on the air looking at some 1978 footage of the New York apples against the Seattle Cascades. And of course I was totally grabbed by the, the total look of it all, the seventiesness of it all, maybe. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I was really fascinated because Billie Jean was talking about Elton John and the song Philadelphia Freedom, which was kind of a ode to Billie Jean um, as her being Philadelphia Freedom because her team was the Philadelphia Freedom. And she was talking about her teammate Vetus Gerolitis hanging out at Studio 54 and she was talking about this league as a vehicle for gender equality. And she's describing this sex and drugs and rock and roll 70s backdrop to trying to change pro sports uh, with this ethic to it. And I was and then she didn't talk about tennis at all. <laughs> and uh, it really set me on this course to find out more. Um, I'm really always interested in stories that have more than one meaning. And she was not talking just about sports, which of course are near and dear to me, but she was um, talking about like this cultural revolution idea of trying to change sports fans, going straight to the heartland, having teams in Chicago and Detroit and Pittsburgh, and uh, trying to draw their football and hockey fans and root, root for the home team and drink and yell at the opposing team. And, uh, you know, I was really kind of captured by this story. And, to, well, to cut a long story short, over a course of like on and off over five years, I find I've kind of become the expert on the subject and I'm probably the biggest collector 
of memorabilia at this point too. That mm. stuff I've bought online that people didn't even know what it was. Usually it was mislabeled, uh, like on Amazon or eBay or something. And, um, yeah, I just went on this really long search and I was really, the more I dug, the more I learned. And what I realized was it was this sport with political intent. But then there's this other aspect to it, which I found really fascinating was, you know, I'm a big fan of, and I'm sure many listeners are fans of what became known as rebel sports and sports leagues of the 70s, like the ABA or sure. the World Football League or WHA. Lacrosse League but back those, then, too. Lacrosse, indoor lacrosse. Yeah, so, but those sports were actually offering an alternative version of something similar that was there. Like, it was kind of operating under the premise that people were looking for new options in their sports viewing, which I think has been proven false. Um, so, but what Billie Jean did was she was, she was not just inventing a new league. She invented a new sport. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a new scoring system. It, there was some, with some backdrop, there's some history of uh, team tennis, like in, like a college team, uh, but Davis Cup a little bit, a little bit of Davis right, Cup. right, yeah. exactly Davis Cup, right. So there was, it's not out of thin air. Excuse me. The other thing you have to remember is that Billie Jean herself was going through a, and she was the catalyst. I mean, she was the full catalyst for the league, and at the same time, she was going through her own transition of uh, <clears throat> the realization of what she wanted to do for equalization of men and women in sport at the same time uh, create this new league and create an idea that women could do this all with no problem. Right. Yeah, no, it was, so it was way bigger than, you know, any business enterprise, right? So it was coming from this really complex place, you know, like maybe Dick Butera who owned the freedoms, you know, this great, you know, this billionaire developer type uh, who was very kind of important in Billy Jean's story, uh, especially around the time of the battle of the sexes and all that. Um, and, uh, but, you know, or there's uh, Saul Berg who owned the New York Sets, who was literally like a cocoa commodities trader. Mm-hmm. Uh, these guys didn't, weren't, I mean, Maybe Dick Butera is not the best example because he was Billy Jean's friend. But most of these people, this was a guys who had invested in WHA teams or World Football League teams or, uh, you know, they weren't really, they were, they wanted to invest in Billy Jean because it was coming off of the Battle of the Sexes. Correct. And, you know, it's, I can't find the footage of it, but there, there's, I read something in one of the newspapers about how it was actually, the league was actually introduced at one of those press conferences prior to that game, that match with Bobby Ricks. So this was all part of the plan. The case, but I, I, I go along with what you're saying as far as uh, how she was approaching this entire thing and, and, and trying to get uh, look at the publicity they got from, from her match 
with Bobby Riggs. I mean, that right. was uh, the whole whole thing was, can she beat Bobby Riggs? Can she beat Bobby Riggs? Are we going to give women equal footing? Well, nobody was a bigger promoter than Bobby Riggs was. I mean, yeah. He was more of a promoter than any of them. <laughs> yep, so, <laughs> he, he had a funny relationship with the league because he would show up for events, but he wasn't really part of it. Uh, he, he would do some would exhibitions, right, Steve? I think you talked about it in the book. Correct. Didn't you do some exhibitions? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a bunch of them, and they're some of the best drawing crowds of, of the league. There was um, the one exhibition that, uh, um, what was it, Elton John and Bill Cosby at right. halftime of the Freedoms game. Right. Uh, you know, they were really <laughs> – you know, that league was really doing something. My, my favorite story about the league is in 1977, which, of course, is the year after 1976 of the bicentennial. Billy Jean and Larry King uh, worked out this deal with the Soviet Sports uh, Bureau to do these um, friendly matches between U.S. and uh, USSR, which lead to the Soviet national team playing in the league in 1977, uh, kind of loosely based out of Philadelphia, playing it, meaning they played three home games at the Spectrum, but they uh, barnstormed the U.S. And uh, they were a permanent this was, road team. This is still the Cold War. This yeah. is still like the twilight of the Cold War, I guess you would call it. Um, and so, that, you know, that's where Billie Jean was at. <clears throat> There's one thing that I read, too, and uh, Don, I'm, I think you would probably know stuff about this, was that <clears throat> Billie Jean by this time is maybe 30 or 32. Right. So she's kind of, and her knees are kind of shot. She was on the back point. end, yeah. She had some bad knees. Right. So this was kind of like, from, from what I got from Larry King, which is a whole trip talking to him, but, um, you know, it was kind of like a vehicle to keep it going for her. You know, um, it was kind of like to get the brand, you know, to really solidify the brand. Now, the interesting thing about this story is Billie Jean is pure legend, right? You know, on every level uh, that we uh, quantify uh, sports in this era. But this was kind of her one failure. This was like her one, you know, this was supposed to be like a big step up. And there was a, you know, there was, you know, a big to do with that first match, May 1974. I think it was May 8th. Right. And, and, you know, there's like the, the freedoms against the Pittsburgh triangles and with Yvonne Goulagong and Ken Rosewall. And there's almost, you know, close to 10,000 people at the spectrum. It's kind of a somewhat of VIP affair, but you know, by game three, there's 800 people. Right. So, and well, I think that's what happened with all against you, Steve. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Channel 17 in Philadelphia, maybe you've been in touch with them. And Merle Reese, who has been the uh, voice of the Philadelphia Eagles for the last 40 years. Right. Uh, a long-running uh, uh, announcer for the Eagles. 
he was the one that actually telecast on Channel 17 uh, all the freedom matches. Right. You might be able to get some video. Uh, I would say no if it were one of the other channels, but 17 is owned today by the same people that owned it back then. And wow. uh, so they may have in their archives, uh, like for instance, 29, I worked over there for a period of time, and we did like the Pennsylvania Derby and all these. But that, when they sold the, the company, uh, they did away with all the uh, the video that they had from the previous company. But 17, wow. 17 never did that. They've been owned by the same people all the way through. So you might, if you want some video, you might be able to get it from them. Okay, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna jump on that to be honest with you, because uh, that's kind of I, that's what I do. <laughs> you know, I just find this. You know, I've been just finding this stuff, and it's hard to get. Like even if you if you Googled um, right now and looked for for you uh, WTT footage, it's there's hardly anything. I mean, there's some controlled by the new version of World Team Tennis. I mean, basically, there's been this, the original league what kind of stands alone. There's been a couple of ventures since. There's several, uh, there's I about, think, I've watched, uh, I guess, a little bit of all of them uh, on HP, yep. the HBO broadcast. There's about maybe 10 of those available on YouTube. Correct. Yeah, yeah they're, start, they're starting to come out for right. sure. You know, Um and, well, and, you know, they have that Julie Heldman announcing. Julie Heldman, right, who, not the greatest play-by-play announcer in the world, but she was a color announcer back then, I remember, with Bud Collins on regular tennis. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so she's really – they were really way out. You know, they, they definitely that – was, that, that was some classic uh, programming for sure, you know. Um, but she yeah, to have a different a, announcer they, they with her every fight. week. They had like Julie would be the host, and they'd have Bud Collins, they'd have uh, right. Charlie Jones, they'd have uh, Spencer Ross. There's a name people might remember from New York. A bunch of they would have a different person every week. It seemed right, and but that's all like seventy seven, seventy eight. If you look at it. that's the last year, um, yeah, yeah, because that's kind of like when HBO comes on, you know, happening. Uh, but the um, like the like a nineteen seventy five match, let's say that's like. Like there's hardly really anything hard. at all. Yeah, some film clips. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. WTT made some promo reels. You know, things like that. Dick Enberg announced a lot of these things. Um, oh, there's a brutal uh, thing that Enberg. They must have paid Enberg a lot to sound excited because he did this little. <laughs> did you see that one where he's kind of screaming and it's yep, not that yep. exciting? So they paid him money, yeah. I guess, to be excited. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Let me just reset here. Bustin' Balls is the name of the book, World Team Tennis uh, from 74 to 78, Pro Sports, Pop Culture, and Progressive Politics. That's the full title. And uh, Stephen Blush is our guest. I should mention Stephen has also written a lot of books about uh, rock music and also has produced a film about it uh, that was uh, quite popular called American uh, Hardcore. So he joined us tonight. And, Don, I'll let you continue because uh, you actually were part of the broadcasts. Uh, uh, Don, uh, w- w- I mean, do you remember – covering these as far as uh, the quality of tennis with the, with the freedoms? Well, you know, at, at that particular time, uh, Philadelphia was big with tennis because, uh, uh, you know, they had the event, uh, the major event in, in uh, January. And what happened, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the family, uh, that's actually the, a, man, a woman and a man and a husband. I can't think of her name right now. Um, but anyway, she really created the indoor tennis and it started at St. Joe's Prep. And then they build it to the fact that it came down to the spectrum and it was one of the major events in the early part of January. Every major, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, Jimmy Connors won. Right. Every, I mean, so all the all the top names were there. But then in those days, you have to remember, it wasn't easy to get over to, you know, the Australian Open, for instance. Right. And so they January was sort of great for them because it gave a venue to go into the next series of events, and it was a big week. Uh, however, once the Australian Open became more and more popular, it was at the same time. And so that pretty much uh, eliminated you know, that tournament entirely. So it was, it was big. Tennis was very big in Philadelphia at that time, both men's and women's tennis. And I think that's one of the reasons that Billie G. King started uh, in Philadelphia, because I think she realized that it was a, it was a major venue for uh, uh, people coming out because you had the main line. You had, you know, you had really had tennis people all around Philadelphia and uh, squash and tennis. And I think that's one of the reasons she thought Philadelphia would be a, a, a home base. I don't know that, but that's my thought. And I want to go back just to say to Steve, I, I don't know that Channel 17 has this tape. I have never talked to Merle Reese about it, but I'm just guessing that they may have some something left over from their early days. Well, I'm a good researcher, so I'll, I'll get on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a um, – what I, what I found uh, – Excuse me a second. Fernberger. Marlins uh, and Ed Fernberger. They're the ones that created – the U.S. Pro Indoor. Oh, the Pro in Indoor, right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they made that into the number one tournament in January. It was it was fantastic. And they got eliminated, as I said, by the British or by the uh, uh, Australian Open. Yeah. Part of, part of the um, reason uh, cited often for the league was the, was the, the, the to, for the rise of interest in tennis was the indoor game. As right. soon as the indoor game really came in, that was kind of change the sport um and uh and i don't think it and if it doesn't seem to me that anyone in 19 in the 1970s didn't think that tennis was was going they they were sure that tennis was going to be the number one sport in the world eventually mm-hmm. you know it was like tennis was ascending in the 70s and then there was and there was no and and you know the the domination of of tennis in America, never materialized. You're right. No yeah. question. About it. I think the problem was with it was, and again, I remember as a kid, uh, I went to maybe one or two. They were the sets originally. I'd forgotten they played in the Col- Coliseum. I saw, I guess I saw them at Madison Square Garden. I think we yep. went with yeah, my dad at one time. Where they transfer, they merge. It's right. still the same ownership. It's still Billy Jean. I guess they didn't like the idea of being the rhyming thing of being the set. It became so the apples they, at that point. Apples, but right. I think the yeah. problem is tennis, I mean, doubles is a team thing. I get that. But tennis is such an individual sport where people like watching individual players. The, the team concept of, you know, rooting for your team, you may like Chris Everett and she was on the other team. You're not going to root against Chris Everett. I think that was one of the problems with the team concept. What, what do you think? Well, I think one of the re- – that, that's an interesting point. The reason I – one of the reasons that the league – said that they would succeed was because when you go to a tournament, you don't know who's going to play when you buy those tickets for the finals. Right. But if you go to go see the Freedoms, you know you will see Billie Jean King every time. You know, that that's kind of the thinking yeah. of 
But it's, not a, it's not a sport where you say, oh, I'm going to root for the Apples tonight because I really love the Apple. You, you might want to see, like, Eli Nastasi was in that league. You may have been a fan of his or, yeah. or uh, yep. somebody's other player. Rod Laver was uh, for the San Diego team. You want to see him. Yep. You're not necessarily rooting for your team. You like to see Rod Laver. So it's not that kind of, you know, hometown rootings thing. I think that was yeah, the problem. Yeah, it's just, well, the, the idea of the root root for the home team yeah, for that didn't work. didn't really materialize either. Yeah, yeah correct. Yeah. You came out to see the individual players. You didn't come out to see whether their team won or lost. And, but you also came out to see the women incorporated in the, in the game. I mean, that was really the – That was innovative then, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, what, and uh, the, what was considered the center attraction was the mixed doubles match. That's right. So, so that's like the, – that's the political statement. You know, this was what we now call progressive politics. Right. Which is why I use that in the in the uh, title in the subtitle because it's pro sports. There's a pop culture element, and there's this seedling of political intent coming from Billy Jean, which is kind of unheard of in sports. Yeah. Well, as you, uh, yeah, as you look beyond Team World Team Tennis, which was really the beginning of her maturization. Yeah. Uh, you know, and getting over to Wimbledon, getting into uh, uh, the U.S. Open, getting equal pay for equal women, uh, all these kinds of things were really, uh, they were they were her hallmarks. That's what she wanted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're talking about with Billie Jean, it, it makes perfect sense today, but it was so far ahead of its time uh, in terms, I mean, the tennis problems were enough. You know, but then like to have this other political thing. And um, so there's that there's the other thing that really hurt the league was that her kind of Americanizing of tennis, if you will, um, really upset the powers that be of tennis uh, mm-hmm. in Europe. And uh, they did take a midseason break for Wimbledon as a consolation to Wimbledon that kind of worked for them. But uh, they cut straight through the, is it the French and the Italian, or maybe just the French? I'm not exactly sure. But um, those two, those two uh, tournaments went on the offensive. And actually, in the first year of the league, 1974, um, in the first leg of the Grand Slam, the two winners were Yvonne Gulagong and Jimmy Connors. Right. And they were not allowed to compete in the Italian or the French because they signed contracts with World Team right. Tennis. Yeah, that was uh that was the controversy between Connors and uh, Arthur Ashe in seventy five, wasn't it? Right, correct. Right. Correct. Yeah, because Arthur Arthur Ashe, although being black, was part of the establishment. He didn't. He and did not play in World Team Tennis. I, I had forgotten that he didn't play, but he did not play in that league. Right. He didn't. He would not play. Yeah. yeah right. But but I what I've, what I've come to understand is that there was really not much good reason other than another paycheck for a man to play World Team Tennis because they were already making the maximum money you could make in the sport. Exactly. Now they, now they didn't. Right. I know today the World Team Tennis. There's I think prize money for games won and all that kind of stuff. But back then, these players got salaries, so there wasn't really a lot of incentive, let's be honest. Playing four yeah. matches in five nights, you know, that fourth match, they didn't really care if they won or lost. They got paid either way, right? Yeah, and they were very mercenary about it. If you hear any of the interviews with the 
owners, they'll uh, say like they felt like, and Billy Jean has said this too, is that the players did not buy in. Like they would not go to speak at the high school or give the clinic at the local youth center or, right. you know, well, they, they wouldn't go the extra mile or, or do some advertising. They were just, they were mailing it in. Yeah. yeah but Steve, you also have to remember that that was pretty much across the board. You know, I don't care whether you went to Forest Hills to see, yeah. they didn't go out and, and you know, they weren't glad handers that would have talked to everybody. They said, oh yeah, look, okay, we'll come to you. Then we went to the corporate cocktail party and that was it. They, you know, even today, I mean, you, you don't yep. just you don't just see these guys going out to high schools and yep. and whatever. That's not the that's not the backbone of tennis. Yeah, well, no. Well, that's right, right. So this is the problem with the league. It's like it's trying to take this elite kind of you know view of the world and kind of merge it with you know, football fans. You know, which is really what they were trying to do. Um, you know, just because of it. Well, in other words, if you're and I'm not. I don't mean that in any way other than like to make it part of the milieu of sports franchises in your, in your town. Well, the thing that was disappointing about it was in those days, so you're, you're talking 73 and on. Yeah. They were making that kind of money then. I mean, now, you know, they have so much money. They don't want to do anything. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> and it's like you, you have to pay them to come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And And another interesting thing was, as I learned, was um, quite a few of the top players, uh, um, uh, John Newcomb, Bjorn Borg, they got injuries from playing too much in world team tennis. And that's kind of the the ends of their careers kind of start. Newcomb ruined his knee, didn't he? He had knee surgery. Yeah, Yeah. correct. Yeah, he was never the same. And, uh, and Bjorn Borg said the same. Yeah, 74, or was it 75? I can't remember. But what, that was uh, John Newcomb's injury. I think it was 75. And then he didn't play in Wimbledon in 75 and 76. Something something like that. Yeah. Um, he, he continued to play, but he was not at the level he was. Yeah. Correct. And Bjorn Borg always talks about how he – you know, he obviously played for another half dozen years, but he said he, that was the first time he really got hurt. And I didn't realize till I read through your book again how long the season was. Don and I were talking before we came on. I thought it was only maybe uh, you know a month or two, but it was from May through almost uh, the U.S. Open, about four months, four and a half months. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They, 44 and games. And a lot of matches. And, it was like it could yeah. be four and five days. I mean, it was a lot. Yeah. You know, tennis is one of these sports where – you know, it takes a lot of concentration and a little bit of zen and, con- you know, whatever, however, you, whatever uh, word you use for it. But you really need like a, your own calm, controlled environment. And these people are living out of suitcases. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a story in um, the book. I think it's the ter- uh, woman from the Toronto team, which already was playing between Toronto and Buffalo. Yeah. They were called the Toronto <laughs> Buffalo Royals. And you can imagine that that was a one-year endeavor. <laughs> but um, they, uh, she describes a, day, a week where it's like they fly from Toronto to Honolulu to Los Angeles to Denver to Pittsburgh to Buffalo yeah. or, or whatever, Toronto or Buffalo. And she re- they returned to one of those other cities. So, um, you know, in five days they did that. 
Crazy. And hard to believe why it wasn't successful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk yeah, quickly before we got about two or three minutes left uh, about all the franchises. You, you have it all really unbelievably laid out in the book. Great job with uh, really just the total detail. But so many franchises move from season to season, not just changing names like they did in New York, but from different cities, right? Yeah, they're they're moving. You know, you had the um, Detroit Loves become the Indianapolis Loves. You have the uh, the Denver Rackets are the 1974 champions. They shock the Philadelphia Freedoms in the finals. And uh, then the next year, they're sold to a block, including Reggie Jackson. Yeah, I was surprised about that. I didn't realize he owned a team. Yeah, yeah he lost $1 million one year on that team, wow. which was a lot of money back then. Back then, sure. So, yeah, yeah. So he, um, uh, and then he got suckered somehow in the deal because within three months later, his ex-partner signed Chris Everett. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, then they became the successful team. Basically, there was two very successful teams. Yeah, who, who, who were the best teams. run teams? Was it uh, the L.A. Strings? Yeah, the L.A. Strings and the Golden Gators, Gators right. the, the San Francisco Bay Area team, uh, were probably the best-run businesses. And Jerry Buss, Jerry Buss said right. it was like the very ex- most expensive college I could have ever gone to to learn how to become a uh, sports owner. And, of course, don't forget Robert Kraft getting his start with the uh, right. Boston yeah. Lobsters. Yeah, I was right. surprised about that in the book. I didn't realize he got involved back then. Yeah. Right, and that was his his how he learned how to do it. His, his wife, you know, who passed away, um, she was kind of like the den mother, if you will, of the Boston lobsters and, and the media that surrounded them in Boston. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's such incredible stories in here. You know, I, I really feel like I've written a 21st century sports book. You oh, know, I God. feel like this is, yeah, this is like a new thing a little bit for a sports book. And, um, I'm excited about it. I'm excited by the response. I'm excited by your interest. And that's what it's all about. You know, it's celebrating a really important uh, enterprise that kind of opened doors for a lot of what we have today. Don, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you wrap it up, Don. When I get down to, uh, down to Florida, I know Doug has a copy of it, but I get down to Florida uh, in another couple of weeks, uh, I'll certainly look forward to seeing it because, as you're indicating, it. It's certainly a, a detailed history of an unusual subject. So I'm looking forward now since talking to you, you're getting a chance to look at all your background. Yeah, and then you will see my 30-something pages and 2,500 newspaper articles that I read I, I, to tell this story. Unbelievable. So, yep. uh, published by, I should say, Feral House, right? That's the publishing. Yep. People, and do you have a Correct. website, uh, Steve, you want to direct people to? Is it feralhouse.com? Yeah, you go to stevenblush.com, S-T-E-V-E-N, blush.com, or please go to Amazon, look up Bustin' Balls or Bustin' Balls Tennis, um, and you will, or look up my name, and you will find the book, uh, Perfect Christmas Present, and uh, whatnot. We'll put a link uh, on our website as well uh, to it, and the interview will be posted uh, a whole bunch of places. So, Steve, a real pleasure talking to him. Glad uh, I saw the blurb, and I'm glad uh, I could get through it on Twitter because it's always great to talk to people about uh, particularly tennis. Some of Don and I are big tennis fans, but I don't think anybody else remembered it except he and I, so I'm glad you did too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for the support, guys. It really means a lot.
Okay. That's very nice to have you a chance to chat with you, and I look forward to it, Steve. Take care. Pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Stephen Blush has been our guest. And, again, Bustin' Balls, World Team Tennis, 74 to 78, Pro Sports, Pop Culture, and Progressive Politics is the uh, full title of the book. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you again soon. I'm Stan Brock. Thirty years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids right here at home in the United States of America.